saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Then, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan David joining you, and joining me from the pack is Carl, our sound engineer, ever present, ever here. God help <laughs> us all. It never goes well, but we're we're gonna give it a try again today, Carl. Okay? It is a hump day. Hump days are good. You're just you're pathetic. <laughs> today we have a guest that I have known for over a decade on on, on different levels. 10, 12 years ago, Crocker Colson was just some other IR guy that had some China clients, and I was not fond of any of those people. Over the years, I've gotten to know Crocker, and I find him to be a very decent guy. I call him a friend, and he reaches out to me once in a while. I reach out to him, and I'm happy to have him on my show. Thanks for joining us, Crocker. And and, and we should also mention I was a... Uh, not in a large way, but I was a supporter of your quixotic uh, campaign to become a member of U.S. Congress, uh, and uh, you're one well, of you, only you two. Repu- one. You're, you're, <laughs> you're one. You're you're one of only two Republicans that I have supported in my lifetime, and the other was uh, Schwarzenegger. So you can feel proud uh, oh. to be in in that rare company. The governor. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I I think I've got just as many scandals as he does. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, it could be Crocker. Crocker could be a problem. <laughs> no, Jinx. but he won. He he kicked Gray Davis out. Of, he booted him out. And I think he was he was like two terms. He, Maybe. Well, I don't think he finished the second term, Crocker. I think it, that it all went badly. Oh yeah, right. You're right. I forgot that part. But you know, <laughs> it's California. It, it's like it Hollywood. It happens. Know, come on, give me a break. It happens. He's redeemed himself. He's more than redeemed himself. Yeah, a pretty good-hearted guy, and I think you are too. And, and you missed actually uh, the beginning of our relationship, which was before you guys got interested in the like dark side of China. You guys were calling me up, yeah. like asking on these like stupid little microcap stocks, are they going to be ahead by a penny, behind by a penny, like? It was mostly Maj, but like no, completely not obsessed. Not, not mostly. It was exclusively Maj. <laughs> but like, like, like infinitesimal like changes in the distribution of earnings, which we now know were all completely fictional. So well, you know, he didn't. He didn't believe that at that time, and nobody else did really. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's very like, few it's people set. when you came to like, you know, forty or sixty million dollar market cap companies. We're obsessing on whether they were going to beat by a penny. Like that—that that was like a very uh, a narrow club. People who are trying to figure that out. Well, look, I, I will say this, you know, about Maj, and uh, y- you know, I wasn't into the investing part of the business. I mean, you and I never spoke, uh, you know, until until there was the short side. He is a very good micro cap investor, very value orientated. He really does try to get it right. And I, this took him by surprise as well. 
And you've got to really love that space to be in it. I hate micro caps. I, I, I hated them before I knew I hated them and I still hate them. And well, we can get into my whole history in IR and I'll, I'll tell you about my experience with micro caps. Well, I mean, listen, let's, let's back up into that first. Listen, you know, tell me a bit about your, your history, Crocker Colson, your history is, is pretty rich and interesting. Uh, I will tell you from what I've read, and you've got a website, crockercolson.com. I, I relate to you and your upbringing and your history and your likes and dislikes, not at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I wasn't an 11 year old that was into avant garde film. What, what, what even is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, Crocker, tell us, Crocker. Well, yeah, you know, so I, I grew up uh, originally as a city kid, mm -hmm. and this was back in the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. So this was in the area, era of, like, garbage strikes and dog shit everywhere and mugger money. So it was a different city, but it, uh, culturally, that city was, like, crazy interesting. And uh, I came from a, a high-culture, traditional family, but I, from a very young age, was into the, the weirder stuff. So, you know, I would be dragging my parents to go see like some like five hour film. And uh, and so then when we got in, the, my parents, you know, they had three kids in private school and my father was head of a nonprofit. So it was like a good job, but it wasn't paying what you get in the private sector. So he just like couldn't handle them anymore. They were crushed under the weight of private school tuition. Mm -hmm. So then they moved us all out to suburban Connecticut. And, uh, you know, at that point, you know, it's a very different environment. So it's very similar to, I heard Roddy Boyd's interview. Like, I'm sure my upbringing, uh, once I was transported out to Connecticut, was not so different. He doesn't, he doesn't carry the highbrow kind of vibe you do today, though. <laughs> Roddy, I think, is a little more comfortable, you know, in the rat-infested gutters of New York taking dictation from, you know, a source. I mean, he's... He's, he's gritty that way, but you know, where you were just like, you know, I, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even the avant-garde film. It was like, Hey man, I just fell in love with writing as well. And that was a passion for me. And you ended up going to Yale. I, I believe you were what, uh, first in your class at Yale. No, I was not first in my class. I was, I was summa cum laude, but that doesn't mean first in class. I was like top decile or something. I don't, I don't know exactly how they, yeah. So you're a dummy. <laughs> I'm an idiot. Yeah. I mean, I, I proved throughout my subsequent life that I am an idiot, but I was actually very good at schoolwork. So, you know, so it's one of those guys like good at taking tests, stuff like that. Then mm -hmm. you put him out in the real world and he makes like one dumb life decision after another. So like, that's me. Well, I think that's all of us in a, in a lot of ways going to Yale. And then, like, you know, again, I don't relate to this so much, even though I grew up in Michigan and, <laughs> and there are great lakes and, and, and another 10,000 lakes in between. You're like this, this sailing phenomenon, right? Like you're like number four in the nation I or whatever. I, I, I was number four in the country in high school. Yeah. And then I was one of the ways I got into Yale early was I, Yale sailing got one pick per year. And so they picked me because there's only so many sailors who also like, do well on you know good grades and can test read. scores right. like most of them are guys who are like doing bong hits in florida and yeah. they can sail 12 months a year yeah you I know, those, those are the best sailors yeah, yeah. okay so <laughs> so anyway so i was their pick and like I, I sailed hard for the first year and a half and then i got into the the what was the yale daily news and that was all consuming so i totally bailed on the sailing program and they got cheated out of their pick did they 
But they did. And and we for them because boy, that was tough on them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I bet. I bet they just, you know, they couldn't get over it. But the, you know, their no, yeah. their loss was what uh, you were the editor of Yale's whatever they call their stupid fucking paper. I, I was the editor in chief, which was like Hunger Games. To who got to be editor in chief? Really, that was a big deal. Uh, oh, you had to work. You had to be there till four a.m. every night, like getting the paper out. It was a daily newspaper. Keep that in wow. mind. While you're also carrying a full load of classes. Wow. So, so it's like it's it was like Hunger Game for geeks, right? Exactly. For like writer <laughs> geeks. Well, you crank out these long reports. You know. Yeah, one a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Crocker, I've been dying to ask because we, and I've never gotten to, we've had a ton of uh, Ivy League guests on. Mm -hmm. Skull yeah. and Bones, real? Oh, so I'm the guy who decided that the Yale Daily News should write an editorial denouncing uh, all the senior societies uh -huh. and uh, took a picture of this guy. I hope you never listened to this, Andy Bain. Uh, who's like pranky had to do was like felating a statue oh. on old campus. And it turned out that his grandmother subscribed to the Yale Daily News. No. So he was on the he was on he was on the front page giving a blowjob to the statue oh. and his grandmother happens to be a subscriber because he's like a fourth generation Yaley. And oh. like he literally had like a hit out on me for like the next three months. Oh. And so I was invited to join Skull and Bones oh, to climb. And then trash them in the Yale Daily News. So nice. okay, let me back let me back up for that for a second. First of all, and like therefore, I never got to work for the CIA. Surprisingly, unless all this like IR stuff is just a cover for being in the CIA, <laughs> which would be a good way to get over to China. That there's a lot to un there's a lot to unpack there. Slow down. <laughs> <laughs> so so you had this guy. You said Andy Bain. Make sure you tag him on and, this show. Andy Bain. <laughs> who was uh, who had explained to Nana why he was blowing a statue because of you? Exactly, uh, and he and, loved me for it. And, and he was and, much bigger. He was like a real. He was like a lax bro or whatever. So he's like a strong guy. Didn't right. want to mess with him. Right, right. Well, <laughs> in Flint, you would have gotten you'd have gotten your ass kicked for that. But <laughs> but then again, so would the guy blowing the statue. Well, so yeah. it would have been a whole thing. Uh, so. So then you, but I don't think his Nana like was into that. Stuff. Oh, not, Nana was pissed. I guarantee it. But yeah, yeah I think the LGBTQ yeah. community has, you know, it's a growth industry now, and they've they've had their their moment of togetherness, and I think it's great, and it's good for yep. them, and a long time in coming, really. So you you were actually approached to join Skull and Crossbones, like how, Skull and Bones, yeah, Skull, well, yeah, Skull and Bones. I guess that shows you how much I care about that. I know my secret society, ridiculous. But like, how does that happen? Like, does somebody come up to you with a paddle uh, and a? Oh, and, I, I, and I had a, a good friend who was in, and I said, you know, I just can't do it. I, I don't believe we're, this is already Yale's already too elite. You don't need like elite, elite, and also it was all male, and it was involved a lot of weird things of being cooped up with other males doing <laughs> stuff that right. just. Doesn't statues. appeal to me. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Why is that always so homoerotic to join one of these organizations? I, you know, <laughs> that's, it, a, that's a good question. That's a very good question. I, maybe, maybe it's like a precursor to the culture of the CIA. I just don't know. Yeah, they want they, they want something on you with pictures early on, right? Exactly. So when you're, exactly. When you're in the CIA, they can be like, "Hey, man." <laughs> they have the, they have the compromat from senior year. Remember when I had you jerking off that goat? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Remember when we all did that thing in the coffin that we have pictures of? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you passed on that and 
you it doesn't sound like you got too much blowback you know maybe some stink eye from a jock yeah. about it no. but uh yeah and and you sail through yale so to speak do very very yeah. well and yeah. you go on from there to do what first job out of college was a year-long they call it a writer internship at uh new republic mm-hmm. which used to be like the most influential magazine in washington dc that was the era when michael kinsley was uh, the editor-in-chief, and he's like one of the smartest people I've ever, you know, had, you know, he's kind of asperger but uh, he's like super, super smart. Then we had a guy running the back of the book who subsequently got into some trouble in the Me Too era named Leon Weaseltier. And it was just an amazing experience because at that point, if you write for the New Republic, you could call any congressman and like their aid would pick up and you'd get through to the congressman. And then I was unique. I was the only one who was allowed to do what they called front of the book, which were these short little political pieces. But Leon liked me, so he let me do these like super long uh, back of the book pieces. So I did this thing on like, what is postmodernism, which was, I don't even know, I think it was like 8,000 words on that. Jeez. I did a whole long piece on liberation theology, uh-huh. which he let me do. Ugh. So he let me do like crazy stuff like yeah. that. And this is like one year out of college. And then that led to getting invited by like art news and other people to be like a contributor. So I was like kind of on a tear as a journalist, Mm -hmm. but then, you know, I just decided to take another U-turn. So, so Leon had his me too moment. Yeah. By by the way, what was his me too moment? Just so we can, you know, context. Oh, he was always tied into every cultural person you could think of in Boston and, and the East coast. And he had a beautiful, I think she was Pakistani wife who, before I knew it was his wife, I made the mistake of hitting on her at a cocktail party. <laughs> but Leon's problem was he just couldn't keep his hands off the female interns. Yeah. And the, the female interns, there were a couple of writers, but mostly they were in the business department yeah. and they were just like the super attractive girls. And so he was always carrying on affairs with multiple people. And eventually like he was just ended up on one of those. You remember when they started posting those spreadsheets of bad guys in the media industry? No. Anyway, that happened. He got taken down. He was one of those guys. Oh well, I'm sounds like it was well earned. He had a he had a forty year run, but yeah, yeah, but he was a great guy, super smart guy, and you know I never knew of anyone that I would consider um, like using uh, undue influence. Like the the ones I were aware of, the girls were into it, but okay. you know I, that's a only new that's, that's what all that men say. <laughs> Carl comes in. Well, I was I was friend with the girls. So, well, well you know. Carl comes in every Monday and says that. Oh, the girls. Are okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Don't ever believe it. So, you know, as a part of this, your journalism career, you you kind of like people come up in a comedy troupe with other famous people. I uh, you worked with Andrew Sullivan, uh, super yep. blogger. Yep. I love Andrew Sullivan. He's, yeah. Uh, um, he ran, he ran New Republic later for a while. Mm-hmm. And then he's like one of the guys who's monetized Substack to the greatest effect. You know, yeah. he and uh, uh, Tabby from Rolling Stone, I think, were some of the top two paid guys. Yeah, there's, there's nothing you can't love about Andrew Sullivan. He's he's a he's a gay Catholic Republican. Uh, uh, <laughs> so like you would just he's actually he's actually a Tory. I think he would correct you. He's not really Republican. He's a Tory. So, yeah, well, you know what? We're in the United States. So, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, he's so. gonna, if you're gonna, uh, the Tories had to pick a side. They'd be Republicans. So uh, although I think he probably has gone independent because he's been pretty disgusted. But he's, he's a great read. And your roommate was Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, who at that time was writing for the Reverend Moon. Uh, 
you know, so he like started <laughs> Not, really at the bottom. writing for the Reverend Moon. I I, I don't think yeah. I knew that. Well, yeah, I can't remember what it was called. It was like the Washington something or other. It, it was the like kind of like sort of right wing alternative to the Washington Post, but it was totally funded by the Reverend Moon. It, it was his attempt to buy influence in Washington. Yeah. Uh, and Malcolm, you know, because he didn't go to Yale, he went to one of the top Canadian colleges. So he didn't kind of have the in. So he started there. And then I think he leveraged that into the Post and the Post into the New Yorker. And then he published um, the, um, the tipping first point. book, The Tipping Point, yeah. which was actually a big chapter of The Tipping Point was another guy who was with me right at the same time. Uh, it was about Jacob Weisberg's mother. Uh, and Jacob Weisberg went on to found Slate. Uh, not found it, but he became for a long time editor and CEO of it. So it was like the, it was a really interesting group of people that ended up, you know, having big runs in the media. Do you, do you still have any any contact with Andrew or Jacob or Malcolm? I mean, you were roommates with Malcolm. Uh, yeah, J Jacob is a close friend. Um, Malcolm, I think, at a certain point, got too famous to, uh, you know, I yeah. see him from time to time out and about with some twenty-something yeah. at his arm. But I, uh, I, 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 I got to tell you, I cannot wait to get too so famous that I can get new friends. I can't stand the ones and, I have. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, I haven't been to Cape Cod for a long time, but uh, I am actually planning on going there this summer for a few weeks. So maybe I'll look, see if I can look up Andrew. Oh, but I was, I was, I was working with him, but not a close. But like Jacob is, is a very close friend. Yeah, I, I, in case you can't tell, I, I definitely find Andrew the most interesting out of all of them. Uh, yeah, but the the Malcolm thing is kind of cool. I mean, you, you, you have in your bio that. You spent weekends fruitlessly trying to outrun Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, what does that yeah. what does that really mean that you were trying oh, to? Oh, he was he he was uh, he was a serious uh, runner in uh, in college. Yeah, uh, and but he'd like because he was just focusing on cranking out articles, like he hadn't been running at all. And I was one of those guys who like would run three or four times a week. Uh -huh. So I was like, oh, let's go out and run. And it was just like, you, you just learn that genetics is everything in sports mm -hmm. because, you know, we'd kind of be keeping pace. And then it'd be like, he'd turn on the, the third or fourth gear and he'd finish in half the time, even though he hadn't been training for three years. Wow. So like, that was like, you know, well, good so I lo totally lost there. But then I went up against Michael Kinsley in Blopong and I just trashed him. I mean, so, you know, there I was in my element. There you go. <laughs> So you, you, you kind of matriculate from there into which I find fascinating to making films. Not only, yeah. not only did, a, you, did you make films, but from what I can see here, you made like four films that I, I know of no one who would want to watch. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, I, I, I guess Trumpet 7, your first film, Trumpet Number 7, was your most acclaimed and, and, and best rated, and it went to Cannes. Um, yeah. And, and, and they're all kind of art house films, right? Yeah, right. So I mean, maybe not your crowd. Not my crowd. Well, it wasn't anybody's crowd. I mean, how did you do on those films? Well, so Trumpet Number 7, we spent so little that, uh, to be honest, we lost money. But, you know, mm -hmm. we, we did get into Cannes with our very first effort. We got released in France. You know, whatever. That was okay. The ones for PBS, those were a break even because they covered all costs up front. And then I think um, there was another producer involved. He probably made some money off of the 
uh, ancillary rights. And then, you know, then the other ones were like on Showtime, but like we didn't get much of advance. So at two break even on uh, three money losers, basically. Okay. All right. Well, I, for Art House Films, that seems like, you know, a win, kind of. That, I mean, but... <laughs> yeah. I never had the breakout. You, you're always like looking like be arty, but then like reach the, the, the edge of the mainstream. And I never was able to do that. And, and I spent like three years or four years on the project I was convinced was going to launch me. And then it all kind of fell Which apart. Which project was and that? So it's, a, it's an incredible novel by Paul Theroux called Picture Palace. Uh-huh. And I uh, optioned the novel. I wrote the screenplay. At one point, I had Meryl Streep attached to play the older version of the character. Oh. Um, and uh, and we had supposedly the international money locked up, but I, then I could never find the domestic. So we only had half the budget. And then everything started, like Meryl Streep got on other projects. So she's like, you can't use my name anymore. And then the option with Paul Three ran out. And I was just like, you know, that, yeah. that kind of broke my heart. And I was like, ready to move on. Right. Wow. Well, you lose Meryl Streep. I mean, there's just like no... Yeah. Meryl's out, but replacing her is Demi Moore. <laughs> what do you think? In a very, in a very serious art house piece. Yeah, Demi's yeah, it's play. it's going to be a very different movie <laughs> now. So, so what? Uh, when when you were in L.A. at this time, and yeah, so, I was. So you're so you're out there trying to make it happen with art house art house films, yeah. and at, at one point or another, you're just like, nah, the hell with this. Yeah, I was like, so, you know, I, I reached the point where I, I decided I wanted to have children as a life goal. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't be like this hand to mouth indie film guy mm-hmm. with no sustainable income. So, like, I, I had to find something else. And so I tried to call, I did SAT tutoring for six months. And then I actually worked in like a, like a boiler room uh, trying to help uh, small businesses that had problems with accumulated debt. And anyway, but then I, I saw this help wanted ad uh, for a investor relations firm mm-hmm. that was out in San Fernando Valley. So like, if you know LA, like yeah. being out yeah. in the Valley is not like a premier address or anything. No. So this was not like, like the top of the pack. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was this guy who had a small, I think there were like, I don't know, maybe there were like six employees when I joined. Um, but the advantage was uh, this guy, Bill Coffin, he was, he'd been doing it for like 30 years. And he was just had a lot of experience and he was generous in sharing that experience. Um, and then he also kind of wanted to like spend more time on the golf course. So as he saw that, you know, I was willing to really put all my heart into it, he then let me advance. So I started as the administrator. What was assistant. the name of this company? It was called um, it was called Coffin Communications Group. Oh, which so then it was, became it was CCG. Which then became CCG. Like when I became president. We negotiated to take his because we always got, you know, especially with healthcare companies, like, oh, I'm calling up with this great, you know, pharmaceutical stock from Coffin Communications. They're like, oh, you're gonna put me in the coffin? You know, this sounds like a dead item. You know, it's dead on arrival. You know, you get every every joke you can imagine from the coffin thing. And it just so happens your name's Crocker Colson. So right. So from that point <laughs> forward, as 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 Bill kind of spent more and more time on the golf course, then everybody just assumed it was Crocker Colson Group. Or whatever, it just became CCG. We never said what it stood for. That's that's interesting because that kind of that kind of brings me up to date of where we met because uh, it was CCG, and you yeah. you alluded to the fact that you said you, you guys were always calling about 
hey, is this, you know, what do you think? Is this company going to beat or whatever? Obviously, that that was Maj, but he wasn't he wasn't just calling you, as you know, right? He was calling Red Chip. Of course. He was, he of was, course. Yeah. He was calling Matt Hayden at Hayden IR. And right. Yeah. He really thought he really thought he had relationships. Like, I mean, I think he really thought he was close to Hayden. Like they were they were buddies right. and, 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 and yeah. they just were not, quite frankly. Right. Uh, you, since you're on the show, you were always just more serious. Like time is money. I'm you know, I'm not going to sit here on the phone with him. And I think that kind of pissed Maj off a little bit. He wanted he wanted people to, you know, notice how diligent he was in his work and compliment him. And yeah. so yeah. he was a uh, more Well, more I, I also just found it like kinda um the questions very like superficial. And I was also like a Yeah, and you you're really bad at hiding whether you think a question is superficial. Yeah, I know. So so and then I was I was also like a big stickler on Reg F D, like we were always doing that training for our clients. And of course, I'm sure once we left the room they totally ignored us. So like when people are like trying to figure out if it's a beat or a miss, you know, it just like makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, I don't. And that was that transition period when Reg FD had just kind of come in and people on the street were trying to figure out how seriously it was going to be enforced or was it just like, you know what I mean? No. Yeah. I, I, I remember like, you know, I was running the, um, the venture capital arm, but like, you know, his, his interview style from what people would say was really, really good because like you can't get the reg FD uh, past that line, but you can ask all kinds of questions around it. And let's face it, everybody does. And you never really, really know, but you, you have, or he had a good sense for it and a, and a a good idea for it. Uh, But I, I could see where that would make somebody in IR uncomfortable, although I've never heard it make anybody else in IR uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so the, so the SEC had kind of a safe harbor for what you call the mosaic theory. So if you can piece together what's out there publicly right. with questions that are not uh, in and of themselves material, and then that adds up to your value-added analysis, whether they're going to meet or, or, you know, when you go out and do some channel checks, that's how it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we all know, in the battle days, it would just work like the CFO would call up the, the three top sales analysts and tell them the number. They put out their thing, you know, predicting to beat. <sighs> and, you know, that never entirely went away. And I remember once we got into the China thing, there were certain uh, hedge funds who would just like insist that me and any of my people who had also trained leave the room when they meet with management because they knew we would be like the FD police. And they wanted us to fuck out of the room. Well, I think that worked for you too, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. yeah. Kept us from uh, liability for listen, stuff we listen, didn't somebody, want to know. Somebody's going to engage in criminal activity. You should probably just go ahead and not be there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, look, I I got more involved in the investing side after an event in September or October of 2008. I think you might remember that was uh, uh, called the financial crisis, and and more than right. half, half my money went away. In, in two months right. and you know and Maj was suddenly living with me uh, for, uh, and uh, you know my wife walks into a room and you know but you know, I'm just kind of holding Maj in my arms telling him it's going to be okay and literally she opens the door doesn't say a word and just you know raises her eyes and shuts the door <laughs> like, I don't want to know what's going on yeah uh, so I, I do remember those days when, like, you know, basically guys on a trading desk would stop asking, answering the phone, and they're hiding on their desks, and 
all that. Um, what is interesting from our perspective is by the time you get to 2009, yeah. We are so overweight, China. Oh, listen, China I, comes out of this thing like a rocket. I'm going right suddenly, there right now. 2000. Okay, all right. I, okay. I, I am going right there right now because, like, you okay. know, and, and I will say for Maj's part, the reason he was so upset wasn't the loss of his money or mine, unfortunately, um, <laughs> because he was still a millionaire and he was still going to be right. okay. But it was other people who had invested, he felt, in him. Right. And, we kind of talked that through over a couple of weeks that his style of value investing and, and really getting an edge by doing more fundamental due diligence was probably the right thing to do. And this was an anomaly. So when we start looking at, I don't know if you remember, he had like 20 things he would look at uh, for a potential investment in a company. Right. And every one of those companies ended up being China based in 2009. Right. Right. So, you know, you're down 80% in two months after being up 50% year over year, the previous two years. Right. And in 2009, he picked up 229% investing long in China. Right. Right. And that's, and that's where you guys kind of come in. So, well, so yeah, well, except you guys are coming in like five years late. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Because you weren't there in the early days when all these things were being put together. Right. When, ben, when uh, so ben you're Wayne coming was in them together. <laughs> well, there was Ben Way, but there was also Andrew Warden. There was John Carnes. There yeah. was uh, Barry. There was, uh, uh, you know, there was, there was like, is that Barry Kitt you're talking about? Dr. Yeah, Barry, Kitt? Barry Kitt. Yeah. No, he that's not, no, that's not Dr. No, Barry Kitt was a good guy. Yeah. Uh, he is a good guy. Um, and he never, um, he he was a hard ass when it came to trading, and and if he found something wrong, he would he would he would be ruthless in getting out of position. But no, his doctor kit was the guy in China who was the one of the school of fraud ringleaders. Yeah, and he, at West Park Capital, that Rick Rappaport and those guys. Were, yeah, so West Park yeah. would kind of do like whatever they could get across the desk. But that was true of a lot of the investment banks in the space. They they you know mm. they just didn't have any. Diligence capability didn't care to invest in that. Well, I don't know like, that any of the ones we just mentioned ever said they did, but I do know that that Rodman and Renshaw said they did. I mean, they they would. Be, I don't know. No, they I would. No, no, I'm not no. asking you. I'm telling you. I was. I was. Well, we were on the investor side, and they're like, "Hey, we might collect 10 percent transaction fees here, uh, but we we have people in China looking at these companies and, and that made us feel uh, better in 2009. They did have a lot of people in China, but they were not, Rodman was never, even when things got bad, was never looking for problems. Right. Well, that became their, their defense in R- the end. Roth, was, Roth was looking for problems. They just couldn't find them. Oh, bull fucking shit. Oh no, I know. I was like, I was traveling with those guys. I, I can tell you stories where the, uh, now, you know, as a, you can say, if you, Dan David, you know, with your background, was able to, like, figure these things out. Right. Uh, but I can also tell you stories. Which was no background that, at the time. I, I, I can also tell you stories of deals that uh, investment bankers walked away from that you never heard about because they found out. Like, I'll give you an example. There was a deal that Bree Murray was going to do, and it was essentially like the Foot Locker of China. 
uh-huh. and they went and this was after the first uh, like two or three frauds have been outed a- xps so, so a- a- xrs it never got public yeah. Yeah. it never oh, got no. public okay so anyway so they um they they, they they were more careful right so there were supposed to be like a hundred stores in the chain mm-hmm. and so they drove all around china and visited 30 out of the 100 right and then like you know it's all like looks like a footlocker it's like all branded and has all the things and blah, blah, blah. it looks great right and people are it looks busy Okay, so then they're like, then like a couple weeks later, they're like, you know, just to be safe, let's go check it again. And they chose like 10 out of the 30. And they went back and they all had gone back to being cell phone stores or whatever they were. So right. these, these, these people went to the limits of renting temporarily stores, completely yeah. decorating them. Yeah. And, and th- that's an example of one they did catch that never made sense. Well, let me ask you this, I've had this argument back when I used to be invited to be on panels with investment bankers, which they refuse to do anymore. It must be something I've said, but (laughs) I I would, I would ask them when, when they say like, oh yeah, we walk away from deals all the time when we suspect or we know there's fraud. And my question to them is, okay. And then who did you tell? Like nobody, you didn't tell any, it's a private company. Who are they going to tell? I don't know the SEC. The, are you talking about a follow-on, or you're talking about if it's like some private company in China? First of all, they're unreachable. They haven't filed anything. Well, number with the one, SEC. they were not. The SEC doesn't they give didn't a shit. all stay private. Some of them did end up making it public yeah. through a different bank. Right? So, so if you're talking about a follow-on, and then I don't know, I don't know the legal obligations that you're under. I know as an I don't IR care firm, what the obligation is. I think there's a moral obligation. No, uh, well, let me. Can I can I answer? Sure. As an IR firm, our contract binds us to confidentiality in perpetuity. We cannot. The only one who can make a noisy withdrawal is an auditor. So if an auditor finds something that rises to the level where they believe that there's a the financially is unreliable and that there may be fraud, they can make this filing with the SEC and do what's called a noisy noisy withdrawal. It almost never happens. But when it does happen, the stock goes to zero. I'm not talking about IR firms, Crocker, that, okay. are, that are basically, you know, they're 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 working for a fee and due diligence wasn't really part of your job until you made it part of your job in the end. But an investment well, bank, an investment yeah. bank that is is supposed to be also looking out for the clients of the bank. Yeah. Like you brought up Breen Murray and they walked away. And I say I say to these, these bankers, who, who did you tell? I mean, like, who, right. did you let any of them know? I don't really have an expectation that that IR is going to make a habit out of breaching confidentiality or whatever and doing this kind of thing. But yeah. I think an investment bank has a, a higher obligation. Well, I, I'll give you a, a, one of my better stories of where we did uh, tell somebody and where that went. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we had a client called uh, China Yingsha uh, up in Harbin. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, like Harbin was like a nest of frauds. Okay, yeah. Harbin Electric. Yeah, Harbin Electric. And there was this woman uh, who was the CEO, and uh, I got to look up her name because I forget uh, what her name was. It was Mrs. Miss Zhao. Okay, so Miss Zhao uh, has built this business, which kind of looks like a uh, like an Amway. Uh, so it's kind of looks like a multi-level marketing, which is illegal in China. Mm-hmm. But we had an opinion from Chinese council that it didn't fit the requirements of being banned in China. Um, so and and you know I sent this. I had this really smart girl who worked for me uh, who 
she'd grown up part of the time in China, part of the time in South America, but gone to college, a good college, I can't remember, good college in the States. So I said, hey, they were having their annual meeting of all their sales reps. And I said, why don't you go up there and you know check it out and just try and talk to as many of these. And they were basically these old ladies whose husbands had been like coal miners or steel factory. And you know, Harvard's in the Rust Belt, so they got mm -hmm. laid off. So it's the old ladies who now need to like cover the basic earning expenses. So we go up there and she's listening to this speech by the CEO uh, and, and the uh, chair. And the chairwoman is keeps referring to all these um, salespeople as, as shareholders mm -hmm. over and over again, shareholders, shareholders, shareholders. And so this girl who worked for me, Jenny, she turns, who by the way, I think works for Microsoft today, uh, turns to the corporate secretary and says, why does she keep saying shareholders? The, the, all the shareholders in the US, these guys are just, and, and they're like, oh, you, you live in South America, you don't understand Chinese well enough. So it turned out, but she, she, she came to me and she said, I'm like 100% sure that she sold stock to these people. On the gray market. Yeah. On the gray market, yeah. which was very common at yeah. that time in Northern China. Yeah. And so it turned out that that was true. We reported it to the CFO, who was a guy based in New York, I can't remember his name, and to the little broker dealer that had taken them public. They both told us like, oh, you know, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Da, 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 da. Then we then we resigned. So, you know, after we said, you know, get three weeks for you to investigate it and tell us what you did. Three weeks went by. They said, oh, you know, you don't understand. So we said, okay, we're out. Fast forward, like a month later, the company puts out a press release saying that, you know, the chairman is in negotiations over their capital structure and uh, involving the, the government, uh, local government Harbin. Fast forward another month, and she was put into a part, she was a party member, a, a party black cell, and then lined up against a wall yeah, and shot. Yeah, so when yeah. you steal from Chinese people, they take it very serious, depending, you know, if it's in Heilongjiang, they shoot you. I don't know what they do in Shanghai, probably, you know, do something else. But, you know, it's very, very serious. But when you steal from US people, it's like, ah, eh. whatever. Yeah, I, 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 I do remember that story now. And uh, they, they because she sold shares on the gray market to a worthless company to Chinese investors, yeah. they, they killed her. I mean, they... And little old ladies who couldn't afford the loss. It wasn't like selling right. like, a, you know, private placement to high net worth, you know, people. It was like little old ladies who could not afford. This was their savings now wrapped up in this company. Well, and, and look, I mean... I. I feel bad for the little old ladies, but like, you know, listeners have to understand too, like when, when Crocker saying she was lined up and shot, I mean, she probably had a, a, a two hour trial, <laughs> no yeah. appeals. And, and it's not a trial. It's a party disciplinary hearing. Yeah. Well, it's it, not, it, you're not even, you're not even in their version of uh, the judicial system. You're in the party discipline and, system. And it's very disciplinary uh, because they kill you. <laughs> final verdict it, it, it's, well, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a sad story on, on both counts right i'm it is know, this it person is lost sad. their life and then it these people sad. lost yeah money they couldn't and, afford to lose yeah and, and and then i also want to correct the record you said like we only started doing diligence like after the problems emerged and that's not true like back in 2005 when i got into this like we knew there were bad actors so we knew if it was like i can't remember all their names right now but if it was like a, a dr kit deal or Anyway, there were like four or five guys where we knew if it was them, it was definitely a fraud. And so we would steer away from any of their product.
But then we thought that we had a line in on these legit deals. Right. And then we were working with these, like what we thought were very smart hedge fund managers, mm -hmm. all of whom had Chinese people over in China, crawling all over these companies. And we thought we were protected by the fact that, you know, cause this was, a, these were like the era of the shake and bake. So you find a US shell and then you do like a, between a 30 to 50, $60 million pipe into the US shell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, presto, you got a, you know, public company upgraded to NASDAQ, the, the hedge funds would get, you know, they get common plus warrants. We would usually get some warrants in the deal as well. So like we were incentivized, everyone was lined up to make it work. And, and it, you know, we thought, we thought we were like on the right side. If you're going to China during those times, and I'm sure if you talk to John Carnes, you know, he was much more interested than I was, you would go to these cities and you'd go to the city and you'd go like one year and it'd be like kind of a dump. And you'd go back a year later and they'd have this like beautiful downtown with all these office buildings. And so you could see the wealth, the physical capital being created in front of your eyes. Right. From the money they were stealing and so from you're us. Like, you're like so intoxicated. You're like, this is real. I want to in on this. But then you didn't understand. Yeah, it is real if you're aligned correctly you know, with the, with the government and your position correctly. It's just not real necessarily if you're an outsider trying to participate and in, in, in the value creation. Okay. Well, look, I mean, I get that I'm a tougher sell on what due diligence was and is. And, and like, I think you touched on it before, like, you know, with the background that I had going into 2009 and 10 with doing due diligence in China, and we're just out there finding, I mean, you know, our story, right? We sent, right. I wanted to prove Carson Block wrong because I came from a publicly listed company here in the United States that would never do something like that. There's all very <laughs> honorable people. And I'm like, this guy's just, you know, completely full of shit. So we hire an investigator to go look at 30 companies over a month, month and a half. And, you know, he comes back and says, yeah, the short sellers are wrong. They're understating the problem. All 30 of these companies <laughs> are a fraud. And then, and then starts the battle with everybody, like the investment banks. I went to them the same way you did on that one deal. And they're just like, well, you know what you're talking about. Go back to where you're from or we're going to sue you, blah, blah, blah. We'd fight with IR firms, not necessarily you. I mean, my experience there, like meeting all you guys, like one of them I remember, <laughs> I still remember the first time I saw you, Crocker. It was, uh, it was at uh, the Fountain Blue at a Roth conference. And I walk in, and there's this guy wearing, like, plaid pants and a bright green shirt. <laughs> and I'm like, what the, who is this guy? And, like, a Princeton haircut, <laughs> what a, whatever, just, like, his, his leg crossed over, and he's just fine and, you know, right. uh, holding court with people coming over to him. I'm right. like, that's a bold move with the plaid. Do you still have those plaid pants? Uh, or the I, green I ones? I do have, uh, I do have, um, I do have. I don't know if you're talking about Madra shorts. Uh, I'm, I'm like about a week away from breaking out the Madra shorts, and those Bro, become I, my I, like. I wouldn't outfit. have a label for them. I wouldn't know Madra yeah. shorts from like Ocean Pacific. <laughs> okay. I mean, come on, yeah. give me a so, break. Anyway, you're making yeah. this worse for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm digging but, my own grave. Yeah, but but like you, you know, when Maj would meet with you and your clients, I mean, you were you were very short. You're very to the point. We, you know, we've got this much time. We've got to meet with another one, and there was that that kind of 
it, I, I'll say professionalism. And then you go to like, you know, Red Chip or, or, or um, Dave Gentry, which I, I, I affectionately call Bozo the IR clown, complete with a, with a big red nose and these really loud suits with vest lapels. And uh, it just totally looks like that guy and that would have his own television station called Red Chip TV. Right. And, and then Hayden, which was, I, I felt was kind of a, you know, a really slick turn him and burn him. He's, he's a smart guy and he sold it at the right time. You know, so I turned down the offer that he took and that yeah. was the dumbest thing I ever did. Yeah, I should have dumb. sold Tam Z and, and I turned him down and then they went to Hayden. He sold. Yeah. He got out like, clean. He got yeah. out clean. And you know, I, I think he had a good guy working for him in John Matteo. Uh, but you know, that Haberfield, Ted Haberfield, I hope you listen to the show. You're just a, a jerk off, but we, we would don't fight. pull your punches there. Yeah. No, nah. oh, I, I, I didn't even <laughs> want to talk to him because, like, one of the first shorts we ever did was China Redstone. Remember the cemetery company, China Redstone? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. So they represented them, and you know, Maj and I decided we didn't want to be short sellers, even though, but we found this information and we want the public to know, right? So we'll put out the information on Lotus Pharmaceuticals. And, and China right. Redstone, and we'll do it for free. We won't charge right. anybody anything, and, and, and people will love us. And and when we did, of course, they said we're short sellers anyway, and they weren't going to pay anything right. for research, and, yeah. and we wasted right. 50 grand. But we get on this call with Hayden uh, yeah. and Haberfield, and, and we're like, look, we, we bought cemetery plots. They don't, and, and, and the receipts we have here, they don't own the cemetery. <laughs> and I remember at one point, uh, Haberfield saying to me, wait a minute. You guys don't know what you're talking about. I've been there. I've been there. Have you been there? I was like, no, our people have been there. And we've, they've got a ministry of cemeteries like in China that we called and said they don't own it. And he kept on saying, I've been there. I was like, okay, let's, let's, just, let's just suss this point out. Somebody took you to a cemetery, pointed at it, and said, I own it. And that's, and that's, that's what your due diligence. Yeah. <laughs> And it really devolved from there. Like Hayden, yeah, you know, right. was just like, you guys are going to kill each other and the call. Just lost the shit. Yeah. And, okay. it, and it turned out that was, that was our moment where like, okay, we're now going to short stocks. Put money to work. And yeah. that first big one for us was Puda Cole. I, I think that's where um, you and I had our kind of like perverse bonding moment. Um, <laughs> even though that, that led up to a, like, two years of misery for me. Yeah. So, you know, we were, we were, we were in fairly close communications at that time. And you were like, you know, Crocker, I have something. I just can't tell you what it is, but just be ready. And it's coming in like, whatever, two days, something like that. I was like, Oh shit. Well, we had put out and a then, note. We had put out a note saying something was coming and you called me. Oh, okay. All right. You have a better memory. You were like, y you know, what, is this really bad? And I was like, yeah, it's really bad. Right. And yeah. uh, you were like, can you tell me what it is? And I was like, I absolutely cannot. And you're like, okay. Yeah. But and you were, weren't you racing against someone else to get it out to? Or no. did you have that to your, you had that to yourself? I can't remember. There's yeah, so many yeah, of we, them. We did have it to ourselves, but we were so, okay. we, we lacked confidence to a degree that we, we actually called in Alfred Little, John Carnes. Oh, it turned yeah, out to yeah. be at the time. I'm not going to tell you about John Carnes. Like this, this, the full story of John Carnes is not out there. So if you're listening, yeah, it is. Did, did you listen to his podcast? Uh, did he talk about the his life before he became a short seller? Yes, and his he did. Collaboration with Andrew Warden. Okay, yeah, he did. Yeah, 
Yeah, okay. he did, right. and then he was okay. he was long some frauds, and uh, and it was not long, like uh, well, put them together, pipe deals, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And Andrew Warden just made a a mint of money, yeah, like a yeah. palace in on Central Park, which uh, you know I'm not yeah. I'm not happy. And look, go go listen to that. And I told John I wasn't happy okay. about it. So okay, and right. it, it, so, nor was anyway. I happy about his buying a a a, a, a pill farm in uh, in New Orleans yeah. that. That was just like selling Percocet to everybody. I'm like, is there is there a moral problem with that at all? You know, um, he's like, I'm in Dubai. Don't bother me. Okay. All right. Okay. Props on that. Anyway, he he's like he's like crazy smart, but he's the only a guy I know who truly played both sides of this from the inside. I played I played you know from the outside, but he played it like from the from the inside. So anyway, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, Pudicol. So yeah. So I'm sitting there in my office, which at that point was like this beautiful office that we were, you know, because we had all these clients in China and, and some in South America and Israel. And yeah, we how like, many offices did you have? You had like New York, oh, Israel, At one China. point, we had uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, L.A., New York. Those were owned offices. Then we had our affiliate in Tel Aviv. And then for a year, we were tied into uh, MZ in uh down in uh in in brazil so you know that was like a total of seven offices you know so we were on this like crazy growth curve uh in in 2009 which you know as you just mentioned that was like while the rest of the world was still like licking its wounds and suffering right china was just like went through the roof they did and that was the year we like harvested you know the most of our warrants we ever did uh, ever and it was like the best year we ever had. Well, you know, while the U.S. was still in the tank, uh, yeah. we did great because all these China stocks ripped. But anyway, so Pudicol, I'm sitting there in the office and, you know, this thing comes out and I'm reading it. And then I'm, and I'm like looking at the thing where he transfers the title to the coal mines. And yeah. it's in Chinese. So I hand it to one of my. He, 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 pledged, he pledged U.S. shareholders interest. Half the company to Citic Bank for no. That's a, the second step. First, he transferred ownership in the mines away from the public company, which we saw in the SAIC files. Yeah, right. And then on that thing was a picture of his driver's license. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I gave it to. It's in Chinese, so I gave it to one of my Chinese, and I said, "Read this and tell me is this true." And they they took like three minutes. So like, uh, yeah, it's true. And I'm like, "Fuck, we're dead." So then I called the audit chair, uh, Larry Wiesel. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, Larry, this company is a, is an absolute fraud. And then I called the CFO, Levy Wu, and told her, Levy, you've been working for a fraud for all these years. And from that point on, the U.S. Well, Crocker, hold on a second. What, what, did she, what did she say? What did the CFO say when you said you're working for a fraud? She said she had absolutely no idea. She was based in Beijing. They were out in, uh, what was that coal country uh, where they were? Uh, Taiwan uh, puts the city out there. It's like the West Virginia of China. Uh, (laughs) It'll come to me. Go ahead. And anyway, so the the city that they're based in is like literally like the West Virginia of China. You get off the airplane with within three minutes, you have like black dust on your on all your clothes. Um, But the thing that that broke my heart about that was I was I, I was convinced that this guy, the CEO, was like the most like legit of all our CEOs. Ming Zhao. Yeah, and I'll tell you why. Because when uh, when he wanted to buy those mines, 
and uh, and the U.S. capital markets fell apart to the financial crisis, he put up his own money to buy them and then put them supposedly into the public company. He did for a while, put them in the public company. And I was like, what a stand-up guy. Like, who, who, what American CEO would take like $8 million of their own money and buy these, these, these mines and put it in? Like, no one would do that. So I was like, and then I have a great story also on him. So the, the last roadshow we did with him, you know, he flew to New York because they were doing a secondary or something like that with Macquarie. And, um, and he, uh, and he was uh, in the, so first of all, he, he, we would, we would help with like ancillary services, like booking tickets and stuff. And we were like, you only have a one-way ticket. Do you want help, you know, booking return? And he's like, oh no, I don't need return. And I was like, well, why? He's like, oh, I bought private plane. I fly back on private plane. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, then we're in the lobby, you know, having coffee. And then suddenly like he starts to sweat and I'm like, what's the matter? He's like, my briefcase. And I'm like, you know, this is translated, but like my briefcase, I don't know where my briefcase. So his briefcase like temporarily disappeared, disappeared for 10 minutes. And he was like literally running with sweat. And I was like, well, what, who cares? You can buy another briefcase. We're right here on Fifth Avenue. And it turned out he had like $5 million in cash in that briefcase. Oh, no, like that was his, that was his walking around money, that's, you know, that's for a trip to yeah. New York. So like that, that, that just gives you a sense of, you know, how this guy was like living large, not so much like partying, like, um, that guy from Malaysia, but just, you know, just like living large. Well, look, man. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know that, you know, everything, you know, related to the guy. Cause you don't just travel around with 5 million bucks in a briefcase for no reason. Uh, well, I'm sure he had friends. At, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he did. But like, it turns out I, like he, he was, you know, a total criminal and he was involved in long way petroleum as well behind, behind that guy. Uh, oh, so, really? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, we, we ended up having a fight with him when we thought we were fighting with long way petroleum. Uh, and it was, it was, it was the same kind of scam, but yeah. So when and you, the fact that Siddick did that, you know, McCory doesn't give a uh, shit. It's unbelievable that McCory missed that, uh, that you find it and they miss well, it. It turns out they didn't miss it. They just ignored really? it. No, that was in there. That's, they paid $17 million, which is a speeding ticket, but they had pulled the same files that we did two months earlier and a month before they, they raised $97 million. And they, they chose to ignore yeah. that the, the assets on which the capital raise were well, based were no longer in the company? Or I guess the, the story is that the underling who, who pulled the file chose not to tell share anybody it. in charge or share. I mean, I mean, what are you going to say when you're caught? And and discovery shows that you had this file, right? Right. So they pay seventeen million bucks or something to the SEC, which I got none of because it wasn't Puda Cole; it was McCory paying, and Puda right. Cole, uh, as a whistleblower award, wasn't going to pay any of the two hundred fifty million dollar yeah. default judgment. And Larry Wiesel spent the next four years of his life trying to unravel that thing to no effect, right. and then he later he he uh, about a year or so ago died of cancer. So. Yeah. And he was a he was a good guy. He had no no idea. He was like a lifer at Joy. He had no idea that was going no, on. No, he reached out to me. Oh, okay. Like one of the very few board of directors or anybody with any kind of fiduciary responsibility involved in any of these companies. You know, early on, people were so shocked, I guess I would say, that yeah. you, you would get a call from a director and say, Okay, you know, take me through it. I'm skeptical, but take me through it. Now it's just like I, I don't want to know. <laughs> The right. plausible deniability thing for 
any so-called independent board of director is is you know complete here right. for U.S. listed companies too. So, did yeah. you ever talk to Ming Zhao subsequent to to our report going out? Did, did you ever have a conversation with him again? Uh, we had a translated thing, and he said he was going to make it good to the shareholders somehow. And he kind of made these promises, but they were kind of vague. Mm-hmm. And then as time went by, you know, it was always through translation, you know, because I, I didn't, I never learned Mandarin, so I, I always had, you know, but I had a big team at that time in China. Mm-hmm. So, and everybody would have. There'd always be like a China account manager on every account. I can't even remember actually. Oh, they, the other irony is we had just done a non-deal roadshow to visit those mines like six weeks before you published a report. So we brought 25 investors out to visit those mines, which they didn't even fucking own. Yeah, well, well buy appointment when, they, <laughs> when, when, when they're ready for you to show up, which is never the way to do it in China, as we as we yeah, since learned. But I'm sure they were running. It's just like they weren't they weren't an asset of the public company anymore. Yeah. So the, then I want to address like past all of this because we could we could we we could tell a story okay. about five okay. other companies, but you had this crisis of conscience that other IR firms didn't have that people this. Just, just doesn't make it out into my community that that you did this and you you chose to say to your clients that all of you are going to go through an extra layer of due diligence from my company from now on if I'm going Mm -hmm. to represent you and what what ended up happening to your business because you did that Uh, I can't say it all happened because of that due diligence Uh, I, I think it was a combination of the market was just melting you know we we've gotten way too overexposed um to that piece of the market um so like it, it wasn't like it, it, in the beginning it was like 50 50 us china and then because china like grew so fast we ended up where it was like 75 or 80 percent of our revenues were coming from china so as you guys and and carson and and you know alfred little um you know started to, to, to rip into these um companies you know, then what do they do? They, 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 they either go private, they just stop filing, they go dark. I mean, they just, you know, if, and, you know, if they have some, some, you know, have like a, a, maybe a fighting chance and they fight it out, but majority just are, they're on a path to disappearing. So like all this market cap that had been created you know, from 2005 to 2010, just like, you know, it's like a, like an ice cube you know, in a, in a sauna, right? So that business is melting at the same time. We're saying, okay, we need to give you extra layer of scrutiny. And we were trying to do in a half-ass way what you guys were doing. So we'd have our employees go like park their car outside the factory gates and try and see how many trucks were really coming through and do stuff like that. But we weren't, we didn't like think of like setting up time-lapse video or- Yeah, but no, nobody else in IR was even doing that. No, 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 nobody cared. Uh, you know, I, I do maintain that uh, there were one or two investment banks that were making an effort. Uh, they weren't necessarily very successful. There were also investment and, and, banks. And, and who were those? I, I know that that once all this stuff came out, I know that Roth did put an extra layer. Of oh, give me a fucking break. No, I, I do. Because I, 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 we went on trips with them. Now, were they effective? No, because they they you know they didn't they didn't like do what you did, which is like go talk to the T person or you know come with you know totally unannounced and be. You know, they, they have to. We gave they would them do. all a roadmap in each report. Like, yeah, I'm, I I remember with Sino Clean Energy that everybody. Who was freaked. the bank on that? 
well, it was one of the two. I can't, I can't was, really it was, remember. It was one of the two. It was either Roth or Rodman. One of the, they were the kind of big. I mean, in, I mean, like, Rodman had a kind of an explicit no, no diligence, no questions asked policy. Yeah. Like if they could, if they could get the follow-on done, they, if they could do the shelf offering of the pipe, they would just do it. Like it didn't matter. And that was a very kind of explicit brand position for them. And I think that's why they got tagged heavier. Uh, it became a PR nightmare for Byron, but I think he didn't get the same level of uh, discipline. He certainly made a lot of money. For a while, yeah. But, you know, he also has made a lot of money in a lot of other ways, too. So. Yeah, well, good for him. Um, you, you know, uh, so that brings us to the China hustle um, because, like, the, yep. in two different ways because cause Byron <laughs> actually sent a cease and desist letter for that movie to me. <laughs> to you? You didn't produce it, did you? No, but I, I had it made into toilet paper. Did I? Did I give you one of those? I, I think I gave one to Drew. If you'd like one, um, I'll mail I would it love to one. you. But it's one. a cease and desist letter with me and Mark Cuban and uh, and um, you know everybody who produced this movie in Hollywood. I'm like, oh, you know this, right. yeah, whatever. Uh, and you know the one thing I want to bring up about this movie, and I, you know, there there are several things that that I have don't like about it mostly myself but in it you're the you're the hero how no, can you not like yourself no no, no. i mean uh, you know it, you could have maybe like hit the gym a little bit more but in terms of your like moral portrayal that was a total win for you well listen maybe if i lose some weight you'll loan me your green pants i you know good for you i'll pass uh but, but in the movie, you say at one point, like, hey, you know, we did this, we did this. Who, who could know? And then it just cuts to me saying a gate guard knew, which was which is in the movie. And I just right. want to set the record straight. That's completely out of context. Uh, right. I was speaking uh, in relation to General Clark uh, and right. what the, the due diligence exactly. that, that Rodman did and, and not you. Which and I already we, explained what that was. Right. And it made and it kind of made you look bad there. Did you ever get any blowback about that? I got a, I got a, a something on my DMs on Twitter last week. Last uh, week. Last week that said from some rando said I just watched China Hustle. Fuck you, traitor. Wow. <laughs> wow. But you know that's such an upgrade from Puta Cole because Puta Cole for like six months I was getting. I know who you are. I know where you live. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill your children and your wife. Love mom. Yeah, love mom. Yeah, no, I, no, I got no from this. These are from people, I guess you know, they claimed had like put their life savings into a single microcap stock in China, which yeah. is like great portfolio diversification. Got wiped out on it, and they were they literally were issuing death threats to me uh, yeah, well, in voicemails. Yeah, that same person, like you know sent an email to me saying the exact same thing. They're just okay. lashing out at the world. And, and, yeah. and, and I really feel for them, but yeah, it, it, you know, and I, I'm sorry that the way that turned out because you're brave enough to like sit down and, and talk to them. Yeah. Most I, people pussied out of it. Yeah. Or, gent, or walked gent, out in the middle. Gentry was, was going to do it. And then he didn't smartly on his part, right. uh, but you did. And there you go. So well, speaking, at, at that time, just one second. Uh, at that time, I was I was kind of out of the IR game, so I didn't really care, and um, and uh, and also I just felt like there was sort of a moral responsibility to talk about what really happened. Yeah. 
And I took the guy, you know, we talked in advance. I took him at his word that he was seeking the truth. It, it, it was more, you know, it was, it was, you know, I think people got a lot out of the movie, but it, it was more sensationalist than I would have liked uh, and whatever. But it, it was, it was, it was, it was like, a, I don't know. It was like a, maybe a like B plus or B effort. Yeah, what yeah, whatever. I mean, my 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 issues were more like like I thought there were more interesting people that they could have spent time on, and and really, I will say this for Byron Roth, even though I think you're a douche. Uh, yeah, there were more egregious investment banks involved in this, and you happened to throw a great party. So, and and Matt Weikert was in the movie, right? So yeah, so there you go. Uh, well, became, and Snoop Dogg, right. Right. Come so, on. I mean, that was that was a bad draw for him in relation to the fact yeah. that there were a great many that could have that could right. have replaced uh, Roth. Um, but it's still well earned. I don't care yeah. how he feels. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So I, I, I'll, I'll tell him on your behalf that you're, oh, he knows you're, you're you're insensitive to his his feelings. He's he's well aware. <laughs> he's such a sensitive guy. I'm he sure. really is. He really. From what I hear, I've actually never met him. You know. I actually have never met him. You've never met him? Really? No. Okay. No, I mean I went to like I said, I went to the Fountain Blue and you know, yeah. I, 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 I mean, saw I saw you in your designer get up. Um, yeah. Oh I gotta was, tell you with the first China conference that we did with Roth was in China. And this yeah. was probably like two thousand and five. Yeah. And at that stage, these Chinese companies, these shake and bakes, they didn't have anybody on the staff who could speak uh, understandable English. So huh. they'd have like a CFO who could kind of write English, but couldn't speak English. So literally we did this like road trip going from like four cities in China. And I would be standing up there doing six presentations in a row on behalf of the companies. It was the most wow. ludicrous thing you've ever seen. And we also, we would, oh, this is what I liked about it. We would, we would come up with the names of these companies. We would build their websites. So, it, you know, I love building things. And I thought at the time I was building things that were real. Uh, so, you know, so that was what was so fun about it was to be like building these stories um, and these what we thought were viable businesses from scratch. Yeah. Until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. Yeah. No, it wasn't fun. So what are you doing now? What's going on? What's going on with you now? I know that like you've had your ups and downs and you're looking to be up again. And I mean, somebody's going to inevitably tweet at me. Hey, you know, I Googled Crocker Colson and he was in the New York Post or whatever. Anything to say about that at all? I don't. I don't really care one way or another, but just give you an opportunity. Yeah. To so to. you know, so I, I, I finally just uh, this week uh, reached a final settlement settlement on the ancillary issues related to my um, divorce. So next week we will have uh, a judgment of divorce, and then it takes probably two months for the uh, court to stamp it. So I may actually be divorced this year after six and three quarters years of being in the court system. Wow. Uh, we, we hold the record wow. for the most expensive divorce in the history of Kings County. Wow. Um, so we incinerated uh, $7 million in legal fees. Um, and I, I lost my entire net worth. I lost all my savings, my IRA. And I also lost all ownership in our townhouse, which, you know, was the most uh, important asset that I held. Um, but I got custody of the kids. So that well, was see, 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 listeners, I told you this was a feel-good story. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 and now, you know, now I'm uh, uh, 
uh, involved with a, a new woman uh, who's a uh, Princeton professor of comparative literature. So, oh. you know, we, we sit around and talk about trash TV, obviously, all, all day. Yeah, you guys watch Real Housewives of Orange County. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what we do. You know, Princeton professors and like weirdo, you know, uh, avant-garde art uh, fans. That's what we so, do together. So you're, you're um, personally happy have, in a relationship? And we have, yeah. And so I Great. have two amazing children from the first marriage who yeah. are now 12. And I have now a four-year-old and believe it or not, a one-year-old from the second relationship. Whatever wow, fertile, aren't you? So I have four kids now. And, uh, you know, and so, and so because of the divorce, I, I kind of kept a low profile for about six years and I, I didn't do any IR. I just did, um, corporate communications. Mm -hmm. So I do like writing CEO speeches and websites and marketing and white papers and like all that stuff. And my biggest client is like a, uh, $6 billion government services company. Mm -hmm. And I do all their marketing in the U S and all their like you know, corporate communication stuff, high level employee communications. So they've been great. They've like, that's taken about 60% of my time. Uh, but also during this time, I, I kind of explored the other side, which is uh, I uh, joined the board and then became chairman of the Brooklyn Music School, which Excellent. is this amazing 115 year old community music school here in mm -hmm. Brooklyn that serves mm -hmm. underprivileged kids and, and gives them access to music, dance and performing arts. Then out of that, I founded a, um, an independent school called Muse Academy, which is now in its third year. Uh, it's been growing like a weed. Uh, it has an incredibly diverse, uh, the, the kids are evenly split between, I'm gonna show that I'm hip now, between white and BIPOC. Uh, and what, we have a very inclusive- What the fuck is BIPOC? Uh, let me see if I can get it right. It's black indigenous people of color. So it kind of incorporates everything. Huh, you, could, you, you can't around. just say white and minority community anymore? No, apparently hey, that's are not killing the way to me do with it. your with, names with these names. Yeah, right. And, yeah, oh. welcome to Brooklyn, dude. Welcome to Brooklyn. Okay. So anyway, um, so it's a great, it's an amazing school, and uh, we're doubling our enrollment next year. Uh, we were the only one of the only schools in New York that was five days a week in person since September. We had zero cases of on-site transmission of COVID, so it's like a huge success story. Good. Our kids had no no learning slide whatsoever. They did have to wear masks, but whatever. Um, so that's been very personally fulfilling. Great. Uh, and now like starting beginning of this year, I'm kind of reemerging. So I started a new entity called AUM media mm -hmm. and I will do investor relations, but I also do, um, uh, I also do digital marketing, um, do media relations, uh, do the kind of like thought leadership stuff. Uh, and I'll do like, uh, on the front end kind of capital markets advisory. So it's, uh, yeah, you know, working with companies that are either like, like you know, six months to a year out from doing an IPO, or working with SPAC sponsors and then hopefully with the targets. Um, but you know, not so much. Call them off. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to do the. Uh, yeah, not come off. Um, <laughs> no, you know, but there, I think it's a legitimate structure. I do think that there'll be certain companies that give out, uh, you know, totally inflated. Uh, BS forecasts and, and what will you do when that. they do that? Oh, that's just I don't think they'll fit because I'll, I'll tell them my my counsel on guidance and they'll say go take a hike. Yeah, there you go. Good. It's just like you know, if you're a stock promoter, you know, I can smell you, you can smell me, right. and we probably have you know one cordial meeting, and that's the last we ever see each other. If you're like trying to, you know, if you if you think you have, and 
there's no guarantees in, in new businesses, right? Yeah, or that's growing true. businesses. Sure. They don't all work out. Right. But if you are in good faith, you know, trying to build a category killer in whatever, uh, and you have a reasonable plan and you can explain your business metrics and how that translates into your forecast and, and, and all not your an owner's warrant structure. <laughs> well, you know, so that's in the eye of the beholder. So, so the question is what, first of all, everything is negotiable in this fact. So the promote is 20%, uh, but maybe it's 5%. And especially when they get down to like month 18, month 19, you know, they're, at that point, they're fucking desperate to do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so if it's a good company, they're going to, they're going to like get, they're going to negotiate away a good chunk of that promote. Um, and the warrant, you know, the thing that stopped the market is the warrant valuation, mm -hmm. but that's a complete nonsense. Mm -hmm. That's like a non-cash charge. Uh, the SEC is, is accountant has never applied that this new valuation theory to any other very comparable transactions that have been done for decades. Mm -hmm. So what it really was is the inside story is the SEC is used to doing like 80 IPOs a quarter. Suddenly they're doing 400. Mm -hmm. And these are guys who are like civil servants. They like to go home at five at the end. and they're, they're working until two, three in the morning, like all the investment bankers. They're like, get me out of this. This sucks. And then the guys at the top are like, wow, they're raising so much money. This, this sounds really dangerous. And then there's some really high profile frauds that have been exposed by Hindenburg and Carson and a couple other guys. And so they're like, okay, so there are definitely some big, juicy, rotten ap uh, apples in this barrel. So we got to, you know, stop it. And the, the only way they could think to stop it was to just throw the sand in the gears with this warrant valuation thing. But that's like, we're at the end of the tunnel there. The SEC has now issued guidance on how to write the warrants so they treat it as equity. So then we don't have to go mark to market every quarter. Mm -hmm. So that's all going away. Uh, and it'll, it'll rev up again, depending on market appetite. Look, if, if, if all these facts mergers into garbage companies and they all miss their forecasts in the next two years, you know, then, you know, that'll be that. But if, uh, uh, if the majority merge into like quality companies or reasonable quality companies, you know, then this will be seen as a viable like third path. You have IPO direct listing, which is really for specialized companies that don't need capital. And then you have SPAC. And, you know, SPAC has the advantage. You get public in three months instead of 12 months. And, uh, you know, it's... Well, it definitely has and, an and, advantage yeah. to somebody. But like, look, look, at the end of the day, they're good for my business. I don't know that they've overall been good for, you know, investors as a whole. Some SPACs well, are. I, some SPACs are. Uh, let, 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 let me say this. Owning a SPAC and then redeeming is pretty much the safest investment you can make. And that's why a lot of hedge funds were, have too much capital. That's why they find it so attractive. So they, they buy the unit, they lever it up five, 10, whatever they can. They get the T bill, right? And then they have the warrant and they just play the warrant and they cash the warrant at the right time. So, yeah. so as long as you redeem, you cannot lose money. Now, yeah, bro, if you I don't was, redeem- I, I, was, I wasn't talking about the hedge funds. I was, I was talking okay. about the retail- but retail kind of could play on. it the same way, you know, it's, it's, but if you're an idiot and the thing has run up like 150% before they even announce a target and you're buying the common, you didn't even get the unit with the warrant. You're just a fucking idiot who doesn't understand what you're doing. And, you know, you know, at certain points, well, prior I, to I mean, look, I, I don't, I don't know that people who lose a lot of money feel better about being called an idiot, even if it's true, <laughs> <laughs> but, but well, it, there's a, there's a real investor education thing that needs to happen. And, you know, I, I, mean, agree I think with that. NASDAQ is making an effort. I think, you know, in a way, you know, Carson said the solution is they need to get spanked. 
Um, you know, but I think that, you know, people need to understand what they're buying. And if you're just buying stuff because it's a meme, you kind of get what you deserve. Well, look, I mean, you know, I want to live in the world you live in where, you know, uh, all retail investors are more educated and worldly and have a better idea about what they're buying. But, but the world I currently live in, uh, that isn't the case. Uh, yeah. so I just say buyer beware. I, you know, I don't, I don't yeah. think everybody getting into this market is necessarily stupid as they are, you know, just truly ignorant in the true definition of the word. And some of that education will cost you money, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, pain is a, is one of the fastest forms to learning in, in any, yeah. in any case, whether you're trying to do a sport or anything, pain yeah. is, is how humans learn. I don't know what, uh, Crocker said about warrants and this and that, but I'm all in for the shacks pack. <laughs> Crocker, this is a perfect example. The 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 guy floats around here, Carl, uh, all day long, right? And you think he would understand something about spe- what does SPAC stand for, Carl? Uh, it's pe- Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Oh, Very good. Oh, Passed good. the test. Yeah, he's that's, cracked that's, a textbook. Yeah, uh, yeah. You cheater. Uh-huh. But uh, but again, shacks back all the way. Uh, whatever. Well, Look, I, yeah, I just think, just wait till it runs to like 300 above trust, uh, 300% above trust, and just buy as much as you can. And, you know, don't don't care that you're just getting the common and you didn't get the warrant. Just go for it. It'll oh, work out for you. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> that is, that's going to make a wonderful pitch. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to do just fine, Crocker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, look, yeah. I mean, I, you know, wish you the best on your business. I, you know, I, you seem to have been able to reinvent yourself a couple of times here. Yep. So this is, you know, round four or whatever. So yeah, we'll you've had a goes. tough road to hoe these last uh, five, 10 years. And yeah. And, uh, you know, pain and suffering is the best learning tools, I think, what you said. So you might Absolutely. have had some you might have had some of that. And it sounds yeah. like your personal life is going great. And yeah. that's that's a good key base to getting out there and having a great professional life again. Uh, is there Absolutely. Anything you want to add that we haven't talked about? You know, is there anything about the space and short? Have you ever considered being a short seller? I talked to my brother uh, two weeks ago, and he was like, "Your brother, by the name, is Cromwell." Yeah, another like really common name. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, uh, uh, and and also was was known as being a a a, 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 a ruthless killer of people who disagree with him. But, um, and, and he was like, yeah, why don't you go into, you know, you know, short selling and go work for one of these guys. And I was like, well, you know what? There's a lot of people who are on the analytical side are stronger than me. And, you know, they already did their CFA and their MBA. Yeah. And there's just not a lot. And also the other thing is, I know you get a lot of like moral charge out of exposing people and ripping them down. I get, I, I kind of like, am energized by building things up so even if it doesn't work out like my 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 big thing is like find a company that has potential where the people where i can trust the people and they have a legitimate shot and help them build in a business that can hire a bunch of people scale into a category leader like that that's my that's like my dream thing just like with a school taking it from like literally a spreadsheet and a powerpoint to now next year, a school that has like 80 kids going to it and is the best like, you know, music and performing arts grade school in uh, in Brooklyn. Like, that's really cool. We, I built something in, in four years, you know? Yeah. So if I can do that, you know, I don't have to work with 
a hundred companies anymore because I'm not, I'm not going to have those leases and I'm not going to have the payroll. I can be more selective and life will be good. That's my hope. Well, look, you, you pointed your ship in a direction, so sail that way, right? Uh, we'll do. I think, I think, we'll I think Cromwell was right though. If you wanted, I mean, like in a short selling environment, like here at Wolfpack or Money Waters or wherever else, very rarely is, is one person, everything, right? Like, you know, right. the writer, the forensic accountant, the sound engineer. <laughs> uh, so, like, yeah, I mean, you bring something to that, and I think Cromwell maybe maybe saw that. But it sounds like you're you're choosing to do things that you think are going to make you happy in life at this point. Yeah, I, and I always have, and that's why I'm not rich. So, but I, you know, I, I'm rich in number of children. I kind of figured you, you weren't know. rich because you spent seven million bucks on a divorce. I, yeah, that kind of that was that, that that zeroed me out again. But you know, the independent filmmaking thing didn't help. You know, the trying <laughs> trying to be the Godard of Los Angeles. That was like not really a strategy Try, trying to for be success. the what? The Jean Luc Godard of Los Angeles. That was like not a strat strategy for success. Oh yeah, Jean Luc Godard. Oh, I love his stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> well, look, you so know whatever. What? You be you. Yeah, I'll be me. And you know, I, I listened to the, your interview, Roddy Boyd. And I feel like, uh, well, at least I've got a more viable business model than he does. But I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually, I'm actually talking to him this weekend because I have some ideas how he can monetize what he's doing. So we'll see how that works out. Yes. please help. That, that is one of the best lines I've heard in, a, in, in so many podcasts. Like my life sucks. My career sucks, but it's not Roddy Boyd suck. I mean, like, and, and Roddy would just laugh his ass off at that too. And he knows yeah. he bangs his head against the wall to try and yeah. try yeah. and do things yeah. on a dime and yeah. for all the right reasons and not trade. But like, you're yeah. so right. I mean, there's just yeah. no money in what he does, but he does it. Anyway. It never will be. Okay. No. No. All right. Love what you do. Thanks. Talk to you later. Leave, All right, my, leave my people alone. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, leave us a comment. Give us a retweet. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks for joining us.